Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori. Last November, the international community concluded its 26th United Nations Conference on Climate Change, or COP26, in Glasgow, Scotland. Coming out of the conference, reviews have been mixed. Among its many successes, COP26 concluded the Paris Rulebook, adopted a consensus decision on next steps, and produced a series of multilateral commitments on limiting methane emissions and deforestation, strengthening climate finance, and more. A surprise joint declaration between the United States and China offered hope that the world's two largest economies and carbon emitters can still work together. At the same time, despite substantial progress since adoption of the Paris Agreement in 2015, the world remains off track to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. On February 1st, EPIC hosted Sue Binyaz, deputy to Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, who played a critical role in both the framing of the Paris Agreement and in the latest talks. Binyaz talked with EPIC journalism fellow and New York Times climate reporter Lisa Friedman, who was in Glasgow covering the conference, about the successes, setbacks, and steps forward. Let's listen in. I'm so honored to be interviewing Sue and having this virtual fireside chat. Um, so I've actually covered 10 uh, of these of these UN negotiations now. Um, and when I started covering them in the Obama administration, actually end of Bush, uh, Poznan, when you cover a lot of these, as I'm sure Sue will tell you, you start to think of them by city, not year. Um, but over the years, you learn that these big negotiations invariably end in a last minute huddle. And in those late night, two days into overtime, wee hours of the morning huddles, there's a bunch of men in suits. And in the middle of that huddle is a woman with her hair pulled back in a bun and glasses. And if you don't know, now you know that she is the one who is the brains of the whole operation. So <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm really honored to be, to be having this discussion. Sue, welcome and thanks for, for being here with us. I, I was hoping we could start with Glasgow. Um, Six years after the negotiation of the Paris Agreement, countries met last year to ratchet up their commitment. What, you know, now several months after that, that it's gelled, what, what do you think were the biggest, you know, one or two accomplishments out of, out of COP26? Well, um, first, thank you for having me, Epic. And uh, thank you, Lisa, for that ridiculously generous introduction. Um, you're the best climate reporter in the world. So um, there's no comparison between us. Okay, let me tell you what I think about COP26. Um, and maybe to, I'll tell you from the uh, US administration's point of view, but I think this is also just like objectively <laughs> correct. Um, you know, we had three objectives going into COP26. And one was to get the world substantially closer to keeping this 1.5 degree limit on climate change or, or warming uh, within reach, we used to say, or keep it in sight or keep it on the table, keep it alive. There are many different ways of saying it, but the idea was that um, in the intervening years since Paris, it's become even clearer that the temperature rise needs to be limited closer to 1.5 than let's say two or even uh, well below two. So that was objective number one. Objective number two was to get some kind of decision 
out of the parties to the Paris Agreement um, that recognized the importance of keeping 1.5 alive and, uh, you know, also recognized the importance of um, what we used to call either the decisive or the critical decade of the 2020s and the need to accelerate climate action um, uh, during that time. And the third was to finish the so-called Paris rulebook. Those are the guidelines that help make the agreement operational. Uh, most of them were done a couple of years ago, as you say, <laughs> I'll say at the Katowice COP, right? I don't even remember what year that was, but uh, by city, it's, it was in Poland. And um, not everything was done. The market mechanism provisions were not done. Uh, some of the details of the transparency regime were not done on reporting and review, which I think of as like the accountability uh, aspect of the Paris Agreement. So those were important things that needed to be finished up six years after Paris. So I would say all three of those objectives were pretty challenging, but all of them were accomplished. The first um, was, a, you know, the US for our part, and I'm not saying we're the only ones who worked on this, not at all. Lots of countries made contributions and the UK as the presidency was also, you know, uh, exercised extreme leadership. Um, but we worked all year on the major economies because those are the ones who account for about 80% of global emissions. So it was really important to get them to increase their ambition, particularly their targets under the Paris Agreement, their so-called NDCs or nationally determined contributions. And we did that through bilateral engagement, series of joint statements throughout the year with countries like China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and uh, et cetera, et cetera. We did it multilaterally through the major economies forum. We hosted two leader level events, uh, one of which President Biden had promised on the campaign trail to uh, hold within the first 100 days of taking office. So, you know, we did lots of things throughout the course of the year to try to raise ambition and so did other countries. And I think lots got done uh, either before or uh, at the COP itself. Uh, the second one was the decision. I had a hard time, although I said to anyone who would listen that we needed a strong decision coming out of Glasgow, I was somewhat skeptical inside my own head because of the consensus process that uh, applies to um, decisions. In other words, not a single country can block the adoption of a decision, right? That's a very tall order because you've got countries about 200 and they have very different interests, right? Some of them are existentially threatened by climate change itself, and some are existentially threatened by, you know, responses to climate change. And trying to get all of those countries on the same page and agreeing to the same thing is, well, as uh, you know, uh, as you know, is um, very challenging. And that's why we end up with these, <laughs> these huddles at the end of every uh, COP. So um, I was a little bit skeptical of whether that would, you know, work out, but it did. And I think the outcome, the so-called Glasgow Climate Pact is, is pretty strong, uh, stronger than I actually anticipated. Uh, the, on the third point, the rule book did get done. And that was also challenging because it was technically complicated. Um, these transparency tables, I mean, they could explode your head if you, you know, were not incredibly steeped in them for the last several years. And they were politically complicated. You know, there were calls to sort of go back to developed countries to do something different from developing countries, even though that's not what the Paris Agreement said. Uh, there were certain outlier countries that had to be sort of brought into the fold. Um, but I think the rule book ended up in a good place. And I think most people would agree uh, with that observation. So I guess those would be my uh, not so quick observations about uh, COP26. Well, that's helpful. And 
you know, toward the end of COP26, there was another huddle. There was a, a big debate over whether the, the agreement should call for countries to phase out or to phase down as the language ultimately was fossil fuels. Give us a little insider view of that because you, as always, <laughs> I saw you right right in the middle there with, with uh, Special Envoy Kerry. Um, how did how did it start? Tell us tell us what you were what you were doing. Okay, well, let me give you a little context, right, so that people understand like what part of the process was this. This was at the very end, and at the very end, you've got the so-called plenary, um, meaning everybody's there. It's not like a subgroup or working group or anything, and you know it's the at the final COP plenary is where you get together to adopt the. The outcome that becomes the final outcome. So the president of the COP, in this case the UK, I mean they have to be pretty sure or very sure <laughs> that when they put it, um, you know, a document up for adoption by everybody, that it's going to go down smoothly, right? Because if you're the president, you really don't want to find out after it's you call for its adoption that you've got somebody um, calling for it, you know, calling to to block the. Uh, the adoption to block consensus. So there's generally a lot of milling around on the plenary floor. I'm sure it's very frustrating to the press because they like want the thing to be to be over and uh, like when is this thing gonna happen? But what's generally happening is people are running around trying to figure out is anyone going to block? Um, and during these rumblings, I would say at the end of Glasgow, it became evident that both China and India had a problem with this particular uh, provision of the Glasgow Climate Pact. So, and, and let's know, just back up for a moment and just explain to folks that the provision was calling for nations. It was a, it was a clause calling for nations to phase out fossil fuels to phase out coal. It was it was actually less strong than that. I've pulled it up in case anyone okay. <laughs> is very interested. It's paragraph thirty six of the Glasgow Climate Pact, and I'll actually read it to you because. The press made a, a very big deal about phase out versus phase down, but it's actually uh, more nuanced than, you know, are we agreeing to phase out or phase down? It's kind of uh, convoluted language. But basically it says that the COP, right, the parties are calling upon parties to accelerate the development, deployment and dissemination of technologies and the adoption of policies to transition towards low emission energy systems including by rapidly scaling up the deployment of clean power generation and energy efficiency measures, including accelerating efforts towards the phase down, which was phase out, of unabated coal power and phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. So you see that it's it's not a very straightforward paragraph. Um, it almost is impossible. Over that one little word. Yeah. So. And um, the other thing about it is, uh, you know, when a final text comes out, some of it has been previewed with certain parties. It all depends on the presidency, right? Sometimes the presidency will like widely share the document and get reactions to it so that they're not surprises and so they can tinker around with provisions that raise problems. Sometimes they take their chances and flag certain provisions for certain countries but not other ones because they want to like they think they're at the exact place where a country is not going to object, and so they basically, you know, take a risk uh, because they don't want to water it down. They don't they don't want to find out in advance that someone would be against it. So presidencies have to play this pretty 
carefully, I would say. I don't know the fact on whether that paragraph was shared with China and India. I just don't know. Overnight, uh, the presidency did hold consultations with various countries and share certain things. But I don't know if this provision, when you talk to China and India, they said that they had not seen this paragraph before and were surprised and would have, you know, objected. I don't know what what actually transpired, but they seemed um, pretty uh, pretty surprised by uh, the word uh, phase out in that paragraph. India had a slightly, um, I guess, different and additional point in the section on fossil fuel subsidies at the very end of this paragraph. And they wanted to add language in there, um, which said, you know, there was a positive reference to getting rid of phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And they wanted to add language, which got added, uh, which said, while providing targeted support to the poorest and most vulnerable. Okay, so there it wasn't a problem with talking about a phase out of fossil fuel subsidies, but they wanted the additional nuance of doing it in a particular uh, way. So there are actually two different issues going on uh, in that paragraph, just to be clear. So, you know, what happened, maybe just to finish one, one more point is that um, a lot of, or I don't know about a lot, but several countries had said, we don't love this outcome, this Glasgow Climate Pact in every single detail, you know, and we would want to change this or that, but for the greater good, um, we will kind of refrain from doing that. So there was a little bit of suggestion of unfairness at the end, right? Because when these changes were made for two countries, essentially they were, you know, privileged to get their changes in while other countries uh, were not. So what happened was after these changes were proposed, the president, uh, the UK, basically had to touch base with a lot of these other countries and groups to make sure that they were going to be okay with going forward. Because if you brought uh, these changes to the floor, to the plenary, and it, it resulted in other countries saying, oh, I was okay with not complaining 20 minutes ago, but now I'm not because other people got their changes, well, then the whole thing would have just fallen apart. So the UK basically had to assure itself that uh, with those changes, it wasn't going to like completely upset the apple cart, uh, which they did. And you ended up having, you know, kind of a smooth adoption. Well, I mean, the most vulnerable countries certainly saw the the changes made in Glasgow as a real blow um, throughout. And, and just, you know, for the audience and for those who are, who are familiar with, with this, uh, you know, the, the poorest and most vulnerable countries have long sought uh, something that in UN parlance uh, is is called loss and damage, aid and assistance for the climate impacts that they can't adapt to, which are happening right now. Why is it so hard for these countries to get the climate justice they deserve? Well, I don't I don't know if you're asking the question about what was the deal in Paris. Maybe you are, but in the deal yeah, in I Paris, really, so I mean, if we could, you know. At every juncture, the most vulnerable countries, you know, are, are set back. Um, you know, here in, in Glasgow, they saw China and India push through language to phase down rather than phase out, um, you know, while they were hoping for and did not get further on, on you know, their issues of protecting their, their countries. Why is this so difficult? And why is it so difficult for 
wealthy countries to come to an agreement with the most vulnerable nations on on how to protect them right now? Yeah, I guess I don't see it that way. Okay. Um, in the Paris Agreement, the there was a push from the vulnerable countries to include an article on loss and damage. Uh, that was accepted. I mean, there was a big negotiation about it, but essentially the climate regime had not really addressed that in an agreement. There had been the creation of this Warsaw International Mechanism on loss and damage. Uh, vulnerable countries wanted it highlighted and uh, included in the Paris Agreement itself, which it was, okay? Then in, um, in Madrid, there was a creation of, I know it sounds funny, but the Chile COP was actually hosted in Madrid because of social unrest in Chile. So they ended up with something called the Santiago Network on loss and damage. And that was another, an additional step towards helping vulnerable countries and basically creating kind of a network where they could get in touch with the various institutions in the world that are dealing with aspects of loss and damage. And that was supposed to be operationalized at Glasgow, which actually did happen. Then there was, um, a move to create a, well, there was an additional request at the very last minute, actually, uh, maybe 48 hours before the end of the COP, uh, a request from the small islands to create a new fund for loss and damage. That took everyone by surprise. That was not really on the uh, agenda. In my view, it would have been irresponsible for me as a negotiator to uh, agree to a loss and damage fund without having you know, laid the groundwork at all within our government and to see whether Congress would be in a position to fund something called a loss and damage uh, fund. So I don't, you know, I don't come up. No, again. But me, so, so the thing that did come out of, uh, of Glasgow was not only this operationalization of Santiago and a call for funding of that Santiago network, but also agreement to host uh, maybe three or four years of dialogues on the loss and damage issue beginning this June. So I would say that vulnerable countries um, got, you know, actually more out of Glasgow than was than was on the agenda of the of the meeting. And as we said in the plenary, we, you know, uh, intend to participate in that uh, set of dialogues in good faith and try to figure out if there are ways to deal with the loss and damage issue. If it's if it's framed as compensation for uh, emissions being emitted into the air and it's a developed country thing, which is how some frame it, we would absolutely not agree with that. Um, Can you explain but, why? Well, because we don't accept that there is liability and compensation and that was negotiated in Paris and made very clear in the, in the Paris outcome that the, the regime is not uh, about that. Um, and, and even if you were to go down that road, there's no reason why it would be limited to developed countries as opposed to, you know, emitting countries. China's the largest emitter in the world. Many countries have profited uh, a lot from the export of fossil fuels. So, you know, even if you were to go down the road of sort of liability and compensation, it would be a, you know, a very different um, and complicated exercise to you know, apportion it, but, but anyway, um, yeah, so that would be my, that would be my view. Do you, is a fund something that the U.S. could support? Well, it all, it all depends. I mean, I'm not going to answer that question in a vacuum. You know, there are funds and there are funds. Well, There's, yeah. yeah, so. 
And just to just to pause and let folks know that um, you know, 10, 15 minutes before before the end, I'll open this up to to questions. I'll ask folks to put their questions in the chat, um, you know, and I'll I'll read them from there. And you're welcome to start doing that at any time. And if things come up as we're speaking that that are relevant, I'll I'll add them in. Um, So, I mean, so the, the, the goal of Glasgow and, you know, the negotiations are to get countries on a path to keep global temperature rise from surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. What's your level of confidence that we are going to stay within the 1.5 limit? Well, it's, you know, I can't predict where we're going to to be. I mean, all I can tell you is we're doing everything possible as a government um, to try to stay within that limit. You know, that's been the overarching goal of US climate diplomacy over the last year. And it's going to be, you know, the goal this year also. It takes so many different forms. I mean, basically, you know, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we've been concentrating on the uh, on the major economies, given their, you know, contribution to uh, emissions. Um, so that's, you know, top priority sort of working with the, you know, X number of uh, countries that um, have not yet aligned their NDCs, their Paris NDCs with the 1.5, I guess you could call it imperative, the 1.5 imperative. One of the, you know, um, we were talking about good things that came out of Glasgow before, and I gave you kind of an overview, but if you want to get more specific about it, I mean, one of the provisions that we think was uh, very significant, and I've, I've sort of tabbed it here, so let me see if I can actually find it. Um, and for, you know, for people interested, this is paragraph 29. <laughs> um, and it basically says that the COP, or the, the parties to the Paris Agreement, you know, request parties and that means parties to Paris, to revisit and strengthen the 2030 targets in their nationally determined contributions as necessary to align with the Paris Agreement temperature goal by the end of 2022. And that was, that was one of the provisions that sort of shocked me that it stayed in. I mean, I worked to keep it in, as did many others, um, but I was surprised that it actually stayed in. I thought some of the countries whose NDCs are not yet aligned with the Paris temperature call would have fought, you know, to, to take that out. So um, but it's very relevant to your question, right? Because it actually provides a hook in the Glasgow outcome to keep the pressure on countries whose uh, NDCs are not yet aligned with Paris. And whether you define the Paris temperature goal as, you know, well below two or well below two and pursuing efforts to 1.5 or 1.5, you know, they, they all uh, would push in the direction of several countries not having yet, um, yet done that. So, so that is a top goal for this year, but I wanna mention one other thing uh, that we're working on uh, that's very relevant to this 1.5 issue and that's the global methane pledge. Um, one of the things that the US uh, I guess concocted, that sounds negative, the US initiated with, um, with the EU last September kind of ish, um, was this idea of getting a bunch of countries together uh, to support a global emissions goal, 
right? So we did not get into the detail of like who exactly is going to do what, but the point was, hey, everybody, let's like sign on to this concept of a global goal of, of reducing um, methane emissions by 30% by 2030 below 2020 levels. And then, you know, we'll figure out sort of work on implementation and all that. And um, I don't think we would have believed it in September if someone had said, by the time you leave the COP, they're going to be 110 countries um, signed up. Now, if fully implemented, this could result in, and I'm no expert on this, but I believe something like 0.2 degrees avoided warming, which you know might sound tiny and insignificant if you don't follow this issue. But if you do, you know that that's like a really big, a big deal. So one of the other, um, I would say priorities for this year is actually getting implementation going uh, with individual countries and groups of countries and philanthropies have uh, put in um, significant amounts of money to help get this thing going. So there's really a lot going on on the kind of the 1.5 um, train, uh, both bilaterally, multilaterally, private sector, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and just to put the point two in perspective uh, for, for folks who, who don't follow this closely, um, you know, scientists say we've already reached about 1.1 degrees Celsius rise from pre-industrial levels, and we're trying to keep below the, the keep to the 1.5 limit. So, so in that context, point two is per certainly a big deal. Um, I'd like to go back to to the to the you mentioned before one of the you know the heart of the the Glasgow uh, agreement in which countries agreed to to boost their their ambition before this next cop in in Egypt um I mean it's interesting that you say countries didn't fight it but we're also not say seeing a lot of countries saying doesn't apply to me Pr pretty much the evening of uh the agreement John Kerry the special envoy for climate change said this is not language that applies to the United States. We already have a strong target. We've heard something similar from the EU. We've heard something similar from Canada. We've even heard from Australia, which certainly does not have a strong target that's in line with 1.5, that, that they don't intend to, to go further and that, that this doesn't apply to them. So how, I mean, what kind of teeth does this provision have? And is it really a success if you're starting to see countries say, not us, um, I don't think countries are saying, well, I can't speak for other countries, but uh, to the extent that people from the US have said this provision doesn't apply to us, I think what they mean is not this provision doesn't, you know, it only applies to certain countries. I think what they're saying is because the language of the provision is countries are uh, requested to basically strengthen their NDCs as necessary to align, I think they're probably saying it is not necessary for us to change our NDC to align with Paris because our, our NDC is already aligned. So I think that's probably what they mean. But I would say, you know, global increase of ambition is still a top priority. And the US is always looking for ways to uh, increase its own and everyone else's ambition. So I wouldn't sort of make this like the litmus test. <laughs> Does this a provision apply or not? Also, the point of the provision was not to apply to the United States and the EU. I mean, I would say that they, the whole uh, goal of 2021 was to get the major economies you know, all of them, really. I mean, we tried to do this in the, well, the G7 first, then the G20 in the major economies forum process, bilaterally, et cetera, et cetera, trying to get all the, uh, the major economies to upgrade their NDCs in a, you know, Paris aligned manner, if you want to call it that, 
before the COP or by the COP. And I think what we were worried about, we, and not only uh, we, but many others, um, uh, we wanted to make sure that, you know, to the extent countries didn't do that, that the issue wasn't just forgotten, right? We didn't want a situation where, oh, if you don't do it by Glasgow, then, you know, you're off the hook. We wanted to make sure that the, the pressure continued uh, so that if a country hadn't done it by Glasgow, okay, then in, in a way you could look at it as an extension, if you want to think about it that way. You didn't do it by Glasgow, but you better do it in 2022. So that's the way I would look at it, not like, oh, it, people are trying to get out of something. No, this is intended to apply to the countries that didn't do what they were supposed to do in 2021. Um, I would also say that, you know, can I just ask, sorry, and sorry. maybe I should know this, and I, I'm sorry, but what metric do countries use to decide whether they are in line with 1.5 or not? Is there an established, you know, I know Climate Action Tracker and NGO does does a lot of this work. Uh, who says, you know, obviously there's many countries that think the U.S. should have a stronger target than the target that President Biden has set out, which is drawing down U.S. emissions 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by by 2030. Oh, did I say it right? By 2030? Yeah, in 2030. Yeah, in 2030. Right. I think I've written it so many times. Can't believe it. But but so who who decides whether that's a target that's in line with 1.5 or not? And how do you decide the yeah, well, I mean, it's not an exact um, science, I guess. Um, and there, there is no, of course, <laughs> objective decision maker in this process. There's no judge uh, and jury to say, and that's the whole you know, premise of Paris is basically nationally determined contributions. So you're going to have some uh, wiggle room at the edges. But I, and I, but I would say it's easy to say that certain NDCs are nowhere close to being aligned with the Paris goal, <laughs> even if it's hard to say which ones are exactly aligned with uh, the Paris goal. Also note that it says Paris goal, right? Not 1.5. I think we would like to interpret it to be closer to 1.5 than well below two, but um, I'd like to be honest about what things say. So I, I wanna just make that clear. Um, so I, I would give China as an example. I mean, China gave and at one point, um, you know, when I think about sort of COP26 disappointments as opposed to good things that came out. I would say that, you know, we probably said that was a disappointment and I think many would would agree with that. Could you um, be a little more specific, what about China? Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, President Xi did announce in, I think, December of 2020, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, on the fifth anniversary of the adoption of the Paris Agreement, there was a big kind of event that the U.S. was not really part of because it was at the very end of the... Trump administration, but um, at that event, President Xi said that they would make four changes to the four elements of their NDC. And, you know, on the one that was related to um, CO2 and 2030, which was, you know, carbon peaking, uh, it basically changed from carbon peaking around 2030, which is language I was very familiar with because we did the joint, you know, I worked on the joint announcement with China in 2014, and that's the first time that that emerged. Uh, they changed that to, um, I'm not sure if in Chinese it's by 2030 or before 2030, but basically went from around 2030 to, you know, before or by uh, 2030, which most, you know, observers would say, well, that that was not at all, <laughs> so, you know, that was not at all enough 
um, in terms of the Paris temperature goal and not even enough to meet China's own carbon neutrality goal of carbon neutrality by 2060. In other words, if you had uh, kind of a plateau during the 2030s and you didn't peak till the very end of the, sorry, until the very end of the 2020s, it would require an incredibly steep uh, dive to get to carbon neutrality by, by 2060. So, you know, we would have liked to see, you know, something much more ambitious uh, on CO2 during the uh, the 2020s incorporated into the NDC, but but you know basically what they incorporated into the NDC was more kind of incremental uh, changes, including this you know difference between around and by or or before. It's it's fa always fascinating how much climate diplomacy depends on these little words by before <laughs> yeah. um, semicolons and and uh, should or shall. Um, before we get to, to questions, let's let's stay on China for a moment. Tell me a little bit about. So the U.S. and China came out with a joint statement um, in in Glasgow. Um, it it gave a little bit of energy at a at a time of of uh, consternation in at the at the talks. Um, tell us what's been happening since, and and how confident are you that China will be in a position to put forward really a, a, you know, a truly more ambitious target before the next COP? Uh, yeah, let me, well, let me go back a little bit just to put the joint declaration from Glasgow in context, just maybe for a minute. Um, we did spend a lot of last year working bilaterally uh, with China on you know, a whole range of climate-related issues. Um, we issued our first joint statement last April, where we agreed to do certain things together. You know, we were both going to uh, put out our long-term strategy or update our long-term strategies by the COP. In other words, our 2050 or in their case, 2060 uh, long-term strategies. Um, uh, and a couple other things we agreed to both do. And then we laid out maybe eight issues that we would continue uh, discussing. And so we did spend all of last summer discussing and all of the fall discussing, trying to figure out, could we reach further agreement on any of these um, things? And it was, you know, it was a tough slog. There was a lot of technical work that was, uh, that went into it and more, you know, a lot of like political and policy work. We also talked quite a bit about what the outcome of the COP should be, trying to see if we could help. You know, we have a tradition of trying to reach agreement between ourselves on certain COP issues, which then can facilitate global agreement. So this thing that, that ended up finishing almost by, I wouldn't say exactly by accident, but it would, you know, the timing was, I think, fortuitous that we happened to reach agreement right in the middle of a bit of a, of a lull the second week. Um, but this joint declaration had a section on the COP. Now that's kind of, as we call it, OBE at this point, right? Overtaken by events because the COP is now over. But at the time, I think it had, you know, a bit of a good impact. Um, the other things that were in there that are of significance are um, Chinese commitments to uh, develop a national action plan on methane in 2022. So that's this year uh, to accelerate their coal consumption phase down. Um, they've, they've already, you know, committed to uh, in their 15th five-year plan to begin the acceleration or to begin the phase down. And what we were looking for was like to make that accelerated. The third was uh, that we both have laws that relate to um, 
you know, anti-deforestation, if you want to call it that, and that we would work together to effectively enforce those laws and that we would, you know, as an institutional matter, set up a working group to carry out uh, cooperation. And uh, we haven't yet met. Uh, the Chinese were in quarantine for 21 days plus seven days. I mean, very different from how we came back from the COP and went back to our, you know, kind of daily lives. Uh, so we are um, uh, set to meet again uh, after Chinese New Year, which is, as Jeff said, um, beginning this week. So um, we will be setting up a working group to go through all, right, all sorry, of When is the next meeting with, with the Chinese? Well, we don't have a date, but it's going to be after, uh, it's going to be in February, where we're going to establish or get the working group going. But in the meantime, China's already working on the things that we agreed to. It's kind of unleashed. I call it a kind of a force multiplier, these, uh, these commitments that we agreed to bilaterally because they have a tendency of getting um, you know, the work going domestically in China by virtue of just existing, um, which, is, uh, which is a good thing. So those are the things we're concentrating on with China bilaterally. Of course, we still we continue to think that they should upgrade their NDC, um, but that's not you know specifically mentioned in our uh, in our joint declaration. Gotcha. We I'm turning to the chat and we have so many questions and I'm going to start a little early because folks have have great things to say and ask. Um, we have a couple questions on on loss and damage. One from from Joe Thwaites. What about a loss and damage arrangement where all countries are liable to contribute based on the cumulative contribution to the problem? Is is something like that, has that been discussed? Is that an acceptable possibility? Yeah, I, I think I'm not gonna say anything more about that, that topic and I'd rather address other topics. We're considering issues. I've said that we're not going to go down the road of liability and compensation and I, that's what I'm gonna say. Um, there, there, let's get, oh my gosh, how do I do this? There's one more that I do wanna at least get on the table and if not something you wanna see. Um, I'm just having a little trouble scrolling up. <laughs> uh, there we go. Well, since I'm a Luddite who can't seem to scroll, I'll, I'll ask a, another um, question first. Um, Jason Funk asks, you know, from the outside, uh, we're, we're talking about Glasgow here, the Glasgow COP. From the outside, it looked like there was quite a bit of, he calls it churn right up into the end of this COP. Uh, that is, there were still novel ideas about Article 6 being introduced even 24 hours before the closing plenary. In the end, many of those things were dropped, but what does this reflect, if anything, about the COP process um, and the durability? And, and I think there's a, a lot of interesting things there. I mean, well, if you speak to that, and I might, I might have a follow-up on, on you know, where we go from here in this process. Yeah, um, you know, last minute churn doesn't bother me at all. To me, that's like completely normal. Um, Sometimes, you know how they say like necessity is the mother of invention. Right. I do think a lot of ideas come out at the end because people are thinking like, wait a minute, uh-oh, um, you know, we might not reach agreement. Um, let's think, is there a way to bridge the gap between X and Y? Or how about if we do X here, could we do Y there? Or, you know, I think it gets people's brains 
you know, running on overtime and a lot of good ideas come out at the end. Also, sometimes co countries hang on to their positions until the last second or whatever. Um, so often these uh, ideas will don't emerge until the last minute, not because of, you know, churn exactly, but just because, you know, that's kind of the name, you know, if the cop were a week long, these ideas would emerge at the end of, of week one. If it were three weeks long, they would, you know, emerge at the end of three weeks. So I just think that's kind of the nature of the, of the beast. Um, what I was going to say about, I, I don't know, Lisa, if I can take the opportunity of talking about cops to say that I think that the next cop might be interesting um, for the reason that there's not really much on the agenda to be, um, you know, finished at COP27. Um, in the past, I have, I sort of wrote an article called something like Wither the Cop with the H in brackets, right? Because what, I, what I was starting to think about um, after Madrid was, well, what hap what does the cop do when it's no longer really in the mode of negotiations as, you know, as much as it has in the past uh, been, you know, in the past, there, we've always been at some stage of a negotiation of something or other, you know, even if it was like year two of a four year process, you were still like trying to develop X agreement or you were trying to negotiate the rules under a particular agreement. You know, now we have an agreement that's mostly nationally determined, right? So every X years countries will be coming forward with their own, you know, designed commitments. And yes, there'll be some negotiation always, but, you know, largely the design has been carried out. And, um, you know, I think you may see that in Sharm el-Sheikh. And, and the question is then, what's the best use of a cop? I mean, you have a gathering of the whole world, uh, not only governments, but um, civil society and a lot of actors that have taken on commitments. There, In the past, uh, we see more and more activity on the sides of the, you know, whatever the, the, uh, the cop as event, as opposed to the cop as institution. Um, and, you know, maybe the emphasis will switch to that and maybe that will be good. Um, you know, maybe the focus will be much more on sort of constructive initiatives than on, uh, you know, the negotiating churn. I don't know. As a negotiator, it's not as process. exciting for me, but sorry. Sorry. Do you think it needs to stay in this process? Like, do we need a COP 40, 50, 60? I don't know about 40 and, and, and 50 and 60. I mean, people have talked over the years about, you know, do we really need an annual COP? And the end, you know, because every year, um, you know, it puts, the, the host country will always want some, you know, no host country wants to uh, preside over a boring COP, right? So there'll always be initiatives and at a year, even a year where you want to focus on implementation, you know, no minister thinks that implementation is, you know, that the I word is tends to put people to sleep, even though it's the most important thing, of course. Um, but then you'll always get pushback from those who say, but that will, but these cops keep the pressure on and you get deliverables at these cops because they exist. So it's actually a good, a good thing. You could even argue that the framework convention, you know, one of its, it doesn't have much content to it. I'm talking about the original framework treaty, you know, it's all about take appropriate measures to do this and that, not very specific, but you could say the most important aspect of the treaty was setting up this annual COP, which uh, although some may say it hasn't achieved enough, it's certainly gotten countries to do, countries and non-state actors to do probably much more than they would have done in the absence of an annual COP where they were expected to come and 
and deliver something. So I don't think the cop's going to go away anytime soon, even even if there might be rational arguments for. Uh, but but it will need to be maybe reconceptualized. We have a question from Zach Coleman. Um, he writes, the administration has put a lot of stock in the commitments announced by the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. Uh, what kind of, what level of confidence do you have that the public can effectively police private financial institutions for meeting those net zero and investment goals? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not really um, an expert in that. I do know that uh, one of the interesting initiatives is a UN Secretary General initiative that was announced at COP26, um, where they're going to pull together experts to try to look into this exact issue of like net zero goals taken on by financial institutions and uh, corporations, et cetera, private sector, and try to come up with some um, criteria by which to judge those kinds of net zero goals so that, you know, because right now there are all kinds of different standards. Um, and so the idea is let's pull together kind of best practices, best thinking on how to evaluate and, uh, you know, make them, I guess the best word would be credible to make them credible. So that's something we're paying, you know, a lot of attention to. You've also got the climate champions uh, as part of the Paris process. Um, doing the, the same kind of thing, it, trying to kind of impose or whatever, propose rigor into these, um, the, the abundance of net zero goals that are being taken on by non-state actors. Um, Stephen Locasio asks, you know, is there a schedule of penalties for the countries that don't meet their NDCs, their nationally determined commitments, climate targets? Um, you know, we know they, they, I mean, if, if you could answer, I think the answer is no, but, but talk a, a little bit as well about, you know, is there any appetite in, in the US, do you think, to, to do a legally binding agreement? Well, um, the answer under the Paris Agreement is it, well, it all depends what you mean by a penalty in the sense of like a financial penalty or a trade sanction, you know, obviously no. Uh, you wouldn't have a Paris Agreement if that was part of it, or at least you wouldn't have a Paris Agreement with um, global participation, and you would probably, even if you had widespread participation, probably the ambition level of the NDCs would be much more cautious, right, because countries would be worried about uh, exceeding their targets and being subject. I mean, there's, you know, there's, you have to look at all of these um, provisions as related to each other. You can't kind of look at Paris and say, I like the participation level and I like the NDCs. Now just let's just make them subject to some kind of, you know, punitive consequence if you don't meet them. Obviously that would like change the entire dynamic of the of the agreement. That doesn't mean that there isn't a system in the Paris Agreement for what you would could call accountability, even though it's not, you know, binding consequences. I mean, that's what the whole transparency regime is essentially about. The transparency regime under Paris is all about having to report on not only your emissions, but how you are doing. It's called tracking progress. How you are doing. That, sorry, but we saw that flouted during the Trump administration. What were the consequences? Well, it wasn't, I mean, the Trump administration pulled out of the agreement. So that was a little bit of a different, different But also story. didn't do the reporting, the, the biannual, the reports that were required. Maybe I'm misstating yeah. it, but I, the, no. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they did not hand in the reports, which this administration has made up for. But what I'm trying to say is that 
the purpose of these track, tracking progress is to see whether you are meeting your NDC. Obviously, if a country doesn't put in its, its report at all, you can't judge that. But the world is going to judge. I mean, this is what outside groups, first of all, con other countries and outside groups follow this kind of thing very, very closely. So, you know, accountability is the job of many, many different, uh, you know, parts of the system, which includes outside groups, think tanks, trackers, the press, um, you know, countries, and the Paris Agreement contains a system that can give you, you know, insight into whether countries are meeting their targets or not with a sort of, you know, as they say, a name and shame kind of approach. So, um, do I think like that's the best system in the world? Well, you know, I can't say that. I'm just like a, I help design these agreements and all I can tell you is that there's a, you know, interrelationship among all these different factors. And if you make this one too strong, you kind of upset things in the opposite direction. So, you know, I have not, uh, in my experience with the climate regime, seen a scenario where you can get all the major economies in with binding targets, with, you know, severe consequences and a high ambition level. I just, I think that's like the Easter bunny in the sense that it doesn't exist. Great. Um, Jeffrey Wang has a, has a question about the $100 billion. So this is a promise that uh, countries made now in Cancun um, to mobilize $100 billion in public and private finance to help developing countries both transition to clean energy and, and cope with the consequences of climate change. Um, it hasn't been met. Jeffrey asks, why is the 100 billion a year to the poorest countries promised and then broken? If these international climate funds are difficult to receive, uh, if it's difficult to receive support from the US government, then what do you think is the best way for, poor nation, for the poorest nations to adapt to climate change and transition to renewable energy development in the most equitable way? Uh, yes, there was a mobilization goal taken on first in Copenhagen, repeated in Cancun, and then extended in Paris. Uh, it went up to, it, it was basically a 2020 goal initially, and in Paris it was extended through 2025. So that's what we're talking about for people who don't know about this uh, mobilization goal. Um, yeah, it was a major issue last year that the developed countries, which were the ones on the hook to, to do the mobilizing, were not on track yet. I mean, not likely to meet it in 2020, although the data wasn't in yet, but they were sort of basing that on 2019 data. And a lot of um, uh, effort was put into getting as close as possible last year. So I don't want that to be, uh, you know, go un unnoticed. And the US put a lot of effort into that, not only in terms of raising its own uh, commitments, but uh, running around trying to get others to raise theirs as well. So we may be in a position to be able to implement the 100 this year, uh, we are working on that, um, which would be yes, two years late. But as we were saying last year, uh, you know, it's not uh, we 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 didn't accept that this is sort of failure, which is what many were calling it. We said if you got a, uh, you know, we were on track to meet 98 in, um, I believe this year, um, 98 is not failure, like in most places, that would be an A plus. So um, we sort of rejected that kind of commentary on it, while saying also that we need to meet it 
uh, as quickly as possible. The other thing the US did is, um, speaking of vulnerable countries, is make its first ever contribution to the Adaptation Fund. Um, this was at COP26. It's a fund that vulnerable countries like. Um, it's true that the Green Climate Fund also gives uh, money not only to mitigation but to adaptation, but there's a kind of a particular fondness for the Adaptation Fund. So that was um, something else that we uh, that we did. And of course, the president announced this new initiative, a US initiative called Prepare, which is also focused on adaptation and, and vulnerable countries. So I think a lot is going on and we shouldn't just look at the 100 as the sole test of you know where the donors are. And you know, as you mentioned, President Biden uh, uh, announced 11.4 billion annual international climate finance um, by 2024, Zach Coleman, asks, uh, you know, if that's if that's enough, a lot of analysis has shown, he says that that figure is far below the US fair share. Um, and also President Biden has had trouble passing big portions of his climate agenda. Um, is the US doing enough? And what kind of reaction are you getting from the international community about about, you know, what we're doing and what we're failing to do? Well, I would say that, you know, the international community is still very positive about the United States. Um, now that may change <laughs> at some point if the US is not able to sort of deliver on its commitments, but I would say that the US, not the US, but the international community is, uh, you know, pleased that the Biden administration has made climate change such a high priority in terms of both, uh, well, I shouldn't say both, in terms of, you know, funding commitments, 50 to 52%, um, NDC, all the initiatives that we've engaged in, um, the fact that all, you know, it's really a whole of government approach. And I think that was really an evidence at the COP. There were maybe 10 cabinet members and heads of agency uh, there, and in part to show it's uh, an all of government exercise. So I think there was a lot of enthusiasm for the administration and, and its approach. You know, do they wish there were more? Maybe. But the vibe that we get is largely, you know, very positive and kind of appreciative of the role that the U.S. and John Kerry, in particular, has been playing in this uh, in this field. The beyond the attention and focus on climate change in the administration, the guts of the U.S. effort to meet the 50 to 52 percent target is in the Build Back Better Act, which, as everyone you know likely knows, is stalled in Congress. What? What are the consequences internationally if the U.S. cannot pass this legislation? Well, um, you know, we're obviously trying to get other countries to implement their NDCs and enhance them where they're not yet Paris aligned, which is what I said a few minutes ago. So the more we can do to show that we're on track to deliver ours, the better off we are, of course. Right. As a matter of diplomacy, you're in a much better or stronger position to get others to do more if you can show that you're you're doing more. So, um, you know, is it fatal if we don't get a particular version of Build Back Better? You know, I don't know. I think there are probably many. I'm not like the expert on domestically how we meet 50 to 52. Uh, I'm told there are many pathways to 50 percent. Obviously, the more we can show that we are on track to get to 50 by 2030, you know, the stronger position we're in internationally to get uh, uh, to get others to do more. And, you know, we're sort of couching the year of 2022 as 
implementation plus. I don't know whether I mentioned that expression uh, earlier, but we're, what we're trying to, you know, some countries have said, this is the year of implementation, right? Because we have the goals on the table. We have a lot of commitments. We have a lot of goals. Now we need to transition to like actually getting them implemented. And I guess we would just like sort of rate, you know, see you and raise you one, say like, yes, it's all about implementation, but the goals and commitments on the table are not actually enough. So we need to add plus. So let me just give a, maybe con a couple concrete examples of that. The NDCs that are on the table, they need to be implemented. So we absolutely can't just like be happy because they exist on paper. We have to get them, um, you know, into domestic policy and law and all of that. But as I mentioned before, some of the NDCs are not ambitious enough. So that's kind of in the plus column, if that makes sense, right there. It's not a matter of pure implementation. It's a matter of actually taking on a higher target. Let me, so another example would be the 100 billion, which was just asked about. The 100 billion needs to be implemented um, as quickly as possible. But the plus is that you're not going to get to 1.5 through the billions. You need to align the trillions. Um, you know, in a, in a, you, you need to Paris align, as they say, uh, the trillions. So that's something that people need to work on uh, more this year. We, we started decarbonizing various sectors, you know, over the last few years, and there were various declarations and initiatives at COP26, like, for example, on shipping, decarbonization, you know, we need to uh, hit other sectors um, with decarbonization initiatives. ICAO is doing some, uh, IMO is doing some, we're, we're working with our first movers coalition to get the private sector to, you know, go even, even further. So that's probably in the plus column. So, you know, I only mentioned that because the more we're in a position <laughs> to show that we're implementing the, you know, we're on, obviously on firmer ground to be able to uh, push others to both implement and go further. We um, we're just at 1.30, but I'm going to close us out which with with one last question from the chat, which I, I think is a, a great one. You know, if parties could, of all the things that you just mentioned, if parties could accomplish one goal at the next COP, what would you like to see it be? Well, that's an interesting one. I think I've been um, convinced by, by people who are uh, whose knowledge is far superior to mine that we should be focusing on what they call fast mitigation. That this decade is one of uh, accelerated action and we should be focusing on uh, methane and other um, you know, short-lived climate pollutants and maybe a great outcome where we're planning to have a ministerial meeting of the uh, global methane pledge uh, countries, if we could get all the key countries into that and actually implementing at the domestic level, that would be a fantastic COP27 outcome. Great. Sue, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank everyone who's uh, on the webinar and um, really thank you so much for, for spending time with us today. Thanks, Lisa, and thanks everybody who tuned in. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Mori.